Welcome to the Over a Beer with the Sam Adams Boston Brewery podcast. This is our third episode, and uh, we are so excited to launch our new Hopstalgia Historic Lager series, which is a series of cans that are exploring lager yeast strains and styles from the past. We are kicking off the series with our Czech Dark Lager, and we figured, you know, what better way to begin than with our founder, Jim Cook. Jim started Samuel Adams over 35 years ago, and at that time ignited the craft beer revolution and continues to spark it today. Joining Jim is our head brewer, Aaron, who is physically bringing this series to life, both from recipe all the way to the can. I'm Jim Cook, the brewer and founder of Sam Adams and Boston Beer Company. I'm Aaron Bottens. I am head brewer here at the Boston Brewery for Samuel Adams. Uh, so, Jim, could you describe what, what kind of led you to the location at 30 Germania Street and kind of what the first few years of, of brewing and, and also distributing and doing all operations out of out of the uh, the Boston Brewery look like? Well, Travis, that's a very good question. It's in uh, this vanished German neighborhood of Boston. And yes, Boston had a German neighborhood. Uh, it was kind of where the open land was in the 1840s when a wave of German immigrants uh, left the political unrest in, in Central Europe and came to the United States. And uh, actually, when we first came there in 1984, there was still uh, a German-American club uh, around the corner from us, just the last vestiges of it. But you can see uh, the other uh, evidence of the, you know, the, that this was a German neighborhood simply by the street names, you know, coming into uh, the main entrance into the, the Bury complex is Germania Street. Um, but of course, uh, on the north side is Bismarck Street. And if you wander around our neighborhood, you will find a Mozart Street uh, and a Beethoven Street. Uh, so these were obviously uh, the Germans who made beer and music and not, uh, not war. Um, and it was a, a German neighborhood from the 1840s until sort of the 1880s when um, it uh, became more Irish neighborhood. And then when we came in 1984, um, it was uh, heavily Hispanic. Um, a lot of Central Americans, Guatemalans, Nicaraguans, um, Salvadorians, um, and, uh, you know, other immigrant groups, uh, some African Americans and uh, urban pioneers um, who wanted to live in a multicultural neighborhood. Uh, and at, at the heart of that neighborhood was uh, this business that had provided uh, employment there uh, since the 1860s. And uh, that that living beat in the heart of the neighborhood was the Happen Repper Brewery. And uh, it closed uh, in the late uh, 1960s um, in that consolidation as the big national brewers drove out all the little local breweries. And it was abandoned. Um, the beers that it made there were moved to uh, Cranston 
Rhode Island um, to one of the last breweries in New England, um, the Narragansett Brewery, which was also actually owned um, at that time by the Haffenreffer family. The Haffenreffer family was a very prominent family uh, in Boston. If you walk across the public garden, you are on the Haffenreffer walk. Um, so the market in many places in Boston. And unfortunately, you know, the brewery was in complete disrepair. It was basically abandoned. Anything of value was stripped out. All the windows were broken. The roofs were caving in. Uh, there were trees growing out of the facades of the bricks. Um, it was used, um, if at all, for an occasional piece of dead storage. Uh, and squatters. And the neighborhood at that point was really at a low point. Um, it was, there was a lot of crime. It was in the middle of the crack epidemic. Um, so houses were getting burned down. There's still a few vacant lots scattered throughout the neighborhood. Those were from houses uh, that basically caught fire during that period and, and nobody could uh, afford to replace them. You could buy a two family house there. Um, and you could have your choice if you were willing to pay thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars for one of those houses. Um, so it was a very different neighborhood. So it was a, a different uh, environment uh, then, and uh, the rent was super cheap. Uh, it was a dollar a square foot a year. So we had a thousand square feet, and it was about eighty dollars a month for our rent. And um, the brewery at that point, uh, as I said, was abandoned, had fallen into disrepair. And uh, a, a neighborhood group of uh, urban pioneers, visionaries, uh, courageous people uh, basically formed a community-based nonprofit uh, and were basically given the brewery. And that, that is our landlord today the Jamaica Plain Neighborhood Development Corporation, um, which had some really amazing, far-sighted, um, wonderful people who had a vision that this could be a thriving, vibrant, multicultural neighborhood as it's become today. And they have been our partners in changing the brewery from uh, a broken down uh, site that was almost 100% vacant to something that is now fully tenanted. Uh, and what I saw in that place, you know, you could question my sanity, but I came down there, I'd heard about it. Um, and uh, I just, to me, it reminded me of the 19th century Germanic breweries, you know, built solid red brick, one building at a time as they saved their money and expanded and uh, with a really nice courtyard. Uh, and I thought, this is where uh, I want to put the Boston Beer Company. And of course, it was the last home of the Boston Beer Company. The Boston Beer Company was, until it closed around 1970, the oldest brewery in America. So, uh, and we still have various Buriana, you know, with uh, that title on it, Boston Beer Company, America's oldest brewery. And so uh, the, the Yanglings are 
now the oldest brewery in America by dint of that hiatus, that like 15 year hiatus of the original Boston Beer Company. That's crazy. <laughs> so can I ask, can I ask Jim, did, did like, you obviously knew about Half and Reffer when you came here or did, or did you not, did you, did you learn that afterwards? After no, I, um, well, I had been in Boston since 1967 at that point. So um, when I came there, you know, Half and Reffer was a viable brand. Um, you know, the, uh, back then the drinking age was, uh, a little lower and in certain states and you could get half and refer malt liquor. Can you talk a, little, a bit about how kind of traditional brewing practices influenced, um, your start in the, in the beer industry? Cause I know obviously like your, you know, your, your family is brewers as well and the recipe for Boston lager, you know, can you just talk a little bit about how those traditional practices, um, influenced the start of the company? Sure. Um, and, you know, I come from a long line of brewers. My, uh, I'm the sixth oldest son in a row in the United States to be a brewer uh, here. And so I was very influenced by, you know, the German brewing tradition, by lager brewing. Um, my great-great-grandfather's brewery was in St. Louis, um, and he made uh, lager beer. That was uh, what the German immigrants brought here about that time, because lager beer, as we know it, was basically, you know, invented, created, discovered, however you want to look at it, about 1840, uh, when the yeast was isolated and, you know, you had a number of things take place at the same time. You had uh, the isolation of this lager yeast, you had the availability of commercial refrigeration that would allow uh, the slower, cooler fermentation temperatures that favor uh, a lager yeast. You also had the uh, advent of commercially available glassware. So it actually mattered what the beer looked like. And of course, the lagering process uh, not only smoothed out the beer, but it cleared it up. You know, all of uh, that flocculent that would float around in a cask type of uh, ale um, was, would settle out uh, in the lagering process. And with a standpipe um, in the bottom of the tank, you draw the clear, golden, sparkling, beautiful lager beer. And when glassware became uh, more common, people actually delighted in that beautiful sparkle of a lager as opposed to kind of the muddy uh, amber to brown colors that characterized ales at that time. So the Germans brought that here to the United States. It very rapidly uh, replaced ales, which of course had come as part of uh, the English settlement of North America. And in the space of 50 years, most of the beer consumed in the United States became lagers from basically uh, nothing in the early 1840s. And my family was, was part of that, uh, that brewing revolution back then. So making lager beers was kind of, you know, what we did. The one 
uh, beer that you make that we make is Boston Ale, which was uh, a style developed in New England. It's called a stock ale, and it was the ale brewers' response to the rise of lager beer. You know, Boston Ale is basically uh, brewed and fermented as an ale, and then aged like a lager to mellow it out and to smooth it out. So it was a way for the ale brewers to make something that could try to compete with the lagers. Aaron, can you kind of speak about how lager brewing kind of influences what you do current day and, and how that kind of ties back into those processes? Yeah, you know, I I didn't really get too much into lager until I started working here for Boston Beer. Um, you know, I, I'm from the West Coast. I hail from Oregon where Northwest IPA is the style to make and everybody makes ales. So I didn't really have a lot of experience with it until I came here and started really diving into what Boston Lager is. Um, so having that influence from, from Jim, from our brewmaster, David Grinnell, and really learning it's like where this culture comes from in lager in the style of brewing lager. And that's that's deep within our roots of the company with um, Germanic history, with being involved in Bavaria and hop growing, like all of these things are part of the reason why I fell in love with Boston beer and brewing. You know, like this, there's, there's so much history here. There's so much uh, devoted to family, to um, cultural history. And part of that is also my own shared history. My family is came from Germany too. So like this is this is all part of me discovering my history and where I am now. So that's that's lager for me. Well welcome home, Aaron. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> Uh, I guess to that point, Jim, can you touch on a little bit how how lager is still important to our brand today as a whole? Yes, the lager to me is kind of the epitome of the brewer's art. Lager beers are much more difficult to make. They're more time consuming. They're more expensive. I mean, there's reasons that you know uh, home brewing and uh, craft brewing that came out of home brewing in the United States, uh, both centered on ales, and it's primarily because you know they were much easier to make for uh, you know the equipment that we had available back at the beginning of of craft beer. You know, people had to cobble together their own equipment. You couldn't call up you know JV Northwest and order a brew house, much less you know get a really uh, super high quality one from one of the great vendors uh, in Germany. Uh, you know, part of uh, being a craft brewer was you know you know had, had to know how to weld and rig tanks and you know sweat lead to kind of uh, you know, make sure everything uh, was soldered right. There were just uh, skills that. Uh, you know, now everybody takes for granted, but the equipment was cobbled together. I mean, the very original uh, craft brewery was New Albion um, in Sonoma, California, built by uh, by Jack McAuliffe, who really started this whole thing. And Jack's skills, you know, he'd done a little home brewing, but 
he was just out of the Navy where he was kind of literally a jack of all trades. Jack could wire, Jack could plumb, Jack could weld. And the original craft brewery was made out of abandoned 55-gallon stainless steel drums that they used to ship the, the soda syrup around in before you know they had the big stainless steel tankers that ship it now. It was all shipped in these stainless steel 55-gallon drums when the tankers started being used that surplused them so you could buy dirt cheap, this really expensive steel. So all of Jack's vessels were 55 gallons, aging tanks, louder tub, mash tub, brew kettle, everything, uh, because that was what he could get cheap uh, as scrap metal. And that was uh, a, a, for craft brewers, you know, you needed to know how to do all of those things. That was David Grinnell's key skill. Um, he, he was a good brewer, but more than that, he was a carpenter, an electrician, uh, a plumber. So um, and when we started, that was how uh, we started, our uh, mash tub. And, and it's terrible to think about it. I was, uh, it was all done by hand. Um, it was just literally a big tub. There were no rakes. Um, you stood there bending over. It was backbreaking work. You know, the, the mash would like set up like concrete and you had the, those white food grade polyethylene shovels and that was how you stirred the mash uh, so we've come a long way since then so speaking of that so i guess aaron maybe you could talk about this a little bit like how is how is the equipment we have available today made those i mean besides the obvious made those processes made loggering easier or has it I, yeah technological advances are huge within brewing if you go back to where we just where Jim was talking when we first started like now we have an automated brew house that takes a lot of that manual labor out of the equation um, we still have the original brew house from when we moved in here um, it's just been modified over the years to be able to give us that repeatability that we strive for in, our, in our making quality here um, and you know like that's all very very important to to loggers, loggers in particular, there's nothing to hide behind. Um, we don't have a ton of hops going in, in dry hop or in the kettle to really create this booming aroma to hide any sort of imperfections. Like if, if our flaws are there, they're there. Um, and I think that's really one of the things that we take pride in with what we do here is that we make super clean loggers, uh, no defects, and we try to we just try to do that as much as we can. And, you know, a, a classic uh, lager like Sam Adams Boston Lager is just an exceptionally demanding beer to make. You know, when I was home brewing, it was pretty easy to make ales, porters, and stouts. Um, they were what home brewers cut their teeth on. Um, I could never do a proper version of Sam Adams Boston Lager, because um, the, uh, the the requirements are just too tight. It has processes in it that um, that we had to revive. Um, there's sort of three uh, signature processes in Boston Lager. The the first one is the decoction mash, and 
the decoction mash means you take a portion of your mash, roughly a third, but it's sort of a trade secret, and you take that aside, you boil it, and then you drop that boiling mash back into the main mash in order to spike the temperature through the sacrification range um, so that you leave in the beer sugars of uh, a certain size that are um, too uh, big for the yeast to really get at, um, but small enough so that they taste sweet instead of starchy. Um, so you're talking about like dimaltose, trimaltose, and some of the, the dextrins. And so you have to create this uh, very narrow band of sugar structures um, in sort of simple equipment. So that's not easy to do. You've got a very specified amount of time that you've got to take the mash from like 136, 138 up through the sacrification range and kill off the enzymes so that they stop, you know, breaking the sugars down. So that one's a fire drill. Um, that requires an extra vessel and unusual plumbing um, to make that happen. So you, instead of the standard three vessel brew house, you have a fourth vessel in the brew house. It's not just mash, louder, and kettle. It's mash, kettle, louder, mash tub and brew kettle um, and second the beer is croissant and uh, again that's a, a, an important part of the flavor of a Boston lager and, and um, that croissanting is a second fermentation that kind of reawakens the yeast but at a kind of starvation level because you you're putting some more you know, food in front of the yeast in the form of fermentable sugars, but not a lot. And so it forces these now awakened yeast to scavenge in the beer and kind of clean it up to eat some of the sort of uh, unfermented byproducts of that first rapid, you know, gorging on all the sugars that uh, the yeast is presented with during the first fermentation. And again, that's a very precise process, um, and it means, you know, uh, a specified time period later, you've got to get uh, another beer, and then you've got to pull uh, a portion of that primary fermentation when it's really at, you know, it's in high croissant. It's when it's most rapidly fermenting the yeast or the most vigorous and active, and you put that into the fermented beer from the week's batch before. And then, of course, uh, one of the other uh, characteristic and unusual features of Boston lager is, uh, I think the German term is Hopfenstomp, um, uh, which is, of course, beautiful and poetic. Uh, and that uh, is the term that we call dry hopping. And, and Sam Adams was one of the very first beers uh, in the United States craft brewing or otherwise to be dry hopped. And we uh, were a big uh, part of bringing that process back. I think it really to 
uh, give credit, it was first reintroduced in the United States by Fritz Maytag um, in 1976 when he came out with uh, Liberty Ale. So these are unusual, unique processes that create the special characteristics of Boston Lager. And I, I think it's very telling that, you know, like New Albion was, again, a, a breakthrough beer. Um, it used Cascades and it used lots of them and it was an IPA uh, and it, it was really the first American IPA and that got copied by, you know, hundreds and now thousands of breweries from, you know, Sierra Nevada to uh, the, the latest startup brewery down the street and, and many other styles have been duplicated you know, hundreds, if not thousands of times, nobody's really duplicated Boston Lager because it's so difficult to make. So to me, a great lager is kind of the the paradigm of the brewer's art. Yeah, and, and you know, on top of that too, if you're a, a small brewery, Jim, to your point, like having a beer take up a tank for a month is pretty hard to take on as a small brewery if you're trying to keep the lights on you know like that's you're you're looking to turn beer through your system and make a profit on the beer that you can sell and sitting on a beer for that long is pretty pretty hard to take yes it is but um <laughs> i learned that patience is a virtue for sure for sure because it, it does it, pay off it worked out for us for sure yes it did and for American beer drinkers. Yeah. Who doesn't love a good lager? Yeah. Aaron, can you talk about some of those processes or some of the processes you used in making the Czech dark lager and why it's like the, the, the perfect beer to start out our new Hopstalgia historic lager series? Sure. Sure. So a lot of the processes that Jim covered with, um, with decoction brewing, uh, that, that is part of this recipe. We use that to help build that body and that flavor in the beer. It also helps reduce the amount of sugar that the yeast can ferment and gives us a sweeter, more full beer. Uh, normally, if we just did a regular infusion mash, we would have a hard time uh, keeping that. We would, we would ferment everything, really. Like, it, it would be a thin beer. There wouldn't be any sort of, like, chew to it. Um, and that is part of that this historical style too like back when these were first made malts weren't modified as well as they are now so they, that's where decoction came from is in order to give that get get the, the starch molecules to break apart and give us that fermentability um, so these days maltings are way more technologically advanced and the the, the malt is more uh, repeatable like it's there's there's more technology there now to help us be consistent in our brewing so at this point it's it's about the tradition and it's about controlling the fermentation it's not about making the malt do something that we couldn't do in the malt house um so that's we get these maillard reactions that create more brown sugar notes more raisin notes more toffee notes and that's part of this style um, this beer is not croisin. Uh, it's kind of raw in that way, uh, but it is aged over 
three weeks. And we, we actually used a different yeast strain than what we normally do. We brought in a, a, a Czech yeast strain um, to have a higher, a slightly higher diacetyl level than what our yeast strain, our house lager yeast strain provides. And because that's also part of the Czech style. They're, they're typically known to have a little bit of that buttery popcorn uh, aroma and flavor to it. Um, it's not too perceptible in this beer right now. We've, we had a pretty successful fermentation and reduced a little bit more than probably what would be stylistically appropriate. But I think it, it works for the modern drinker who isn't used to that. Um, we used our we used Czech sauce hops. That's like the king of Czech brewing. Um, these are our own proprietary uh, pellets that we use throughout Boston Lager. We use and all, all of our styles that um, have noble hops in them. It's really simple. Like it's 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 a Rheinheitsgebot beer. It's malt. It's water. It's yeast, and it's hops. Like that's that's always what we strive for with these traditional styles. Sounds delicious. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll send you some, Jim. I guess both of you can you just kind of explain why it's important to keep these kind of traditional techniques and 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 beer styles relevant and alive. Yeah, I'll I'll start. Um, the first answer is because they make great beer. So uh, you know these were styles that were developed to maximize the flavor that comes out of the ingredients and is conveyed by the beer to the drinker. You know, for most of brewing history, people wanted to make lots of great flavor. You know, it's only been within the last sort of century when brewers started uh, reducing flavor and developing techniques that made lighter uh, and sort of cleaner, but almost vanishingly light beers. Uh, so first of all, these techniques are the essence of what a brewer does, which is try to bring out the flavors in his or her ingredients um, and convey them to the drinker. And number two, um, they're not things that you can duplicate with shortcuts. You know, the decoction mash produces a unique body and mouthfeel and uh, a unique sweetness. And there's no shortcut to do that. The same thing with, you know, the, the croisoning. Um, it just makes the beer, you know, almost beautifully clean um, as well as dry hopping. So if those are lost, then flavor is lost. And that's not what we want. Yeah, and you know, the, the thing about beer styles too is that it's cyclical too. So we have these flashy new styles that are, you know, hazy, fruited, soda pop-like. And now we also have these traditional styles that I think are really important to the core of brewing. Like we wouldn't have been able to make these hazy ales or hazy lagers without having these traditional styles. So you have to pay homage to that. Um, our brewery where we work is old. And this is something that we hold to our core as part of our values. And I think it's still important to, to continue to promote that and make like help folks see that there's more to the to beer than just the, the hazy or 
the fruited beer. Like there's there's so much more out there, and like we don't even know. We we haven't made every style, so why not? Yeah, I think uh, uh, to b- build on Aaron's point that you know these styles and brewing techniques uh, you know, bring a lot to the party. Um, I think of uh, like eleven or so years ago, um, a brewer, American brewer, showed up at our brewery um, looking for a job, and we hired him. And he came from uh, a brewery in Leipzig, uh, which is the eastern part of Germany, and uh, and it was the last brewery pretty much in the world, making a style of beer that I hadn't heard of, uh, so, slightly salty, slightly sour, called Goza. Well, um, you know, that went from one brewery making it to two uh, at Boston Beer Company, and we really liked it, uh, played around with it, did a couple of beers that were Goza's, and it caught hold and today there's hundreds of breweries in the United States making a style that came one brewery away from vanishing. Yeah. And we rely so much on technique and history with that too. So having brewers from other, other countries, other breweries, like we, we, we really want to endorse that we're a community and that we need to pull from that knowledge base and continue to promote this heritage that we all have and we 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 probably aren't all aware of it either you know like that's there's there's so much to learn it's humbling yeah for sure well i want to thank you both for for chatting with us about this uh our new uh, historic lager series um i think it's probably safe to say that we're all pretty excited to enjoy one of these uh, in in the coming weeks so um yeah, thank you. Thank you both for, for chatting with us today, and we, we really appreciate it. Oh, you made me so thirsty. I can't <laughs> wait too. for the Czech dark lager. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll, get, we'll get some sent down to you. All right. Thank you. Our Czech dark lager, the first in our new Hopstalgia historic lager series, will be available at the Boston Brewery starting Thursday, March 4th. And is available in four packs and full cases for pickup or delivery. See you soon. Cheers.